Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. China is the world's leading consumer of energy and the largest current source of greenhouse gas emissions. The country, which is also a key supplier of clean energy technology, is, in a word, indispensable to any global effort to address climate change and to speeding forward with a transition to clean energy. Yet in recent years, economic and geopolitical tensions have increasingly characterized the relationship between China and many of the world's developed economies. The degree to which these tensions frame China's relationship with much of the world and the degree to which China will be a collaborative or a competitive force in addressing shared global challenges has implications for the global energy system and for the quality of our environment. On today's podcast, we'll be exploring China's rapidly evolving role in global energy and environmental efforts with Scott Moore, Director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Scott is author of the recently published book, China's Next Act, which explores China's role in producing cutting-edge technologies, not only in energy, but also in the fields of artificial intelligence and biomedicine. In his book, Scott examines the political and even ethical dilemmas that accompany developments in all of these technology areas. In the podcast, we'll explore how China's state-directed economic system and the country's economic ambitions influence global efforts to advance energy technology and transform our energy system. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. Great to be with you. Your book, titled China's Next Act, broadly explores China's centrality in many areas of technology and sustainability. Could you start us out by overviewing the book and its central theme? Andy, the book as a whole has a pretty basic message, which is that we should be thinking about China, its rise and its role in the world, mainly in terms of China's role in uh, addressing our shared sustainability challenges, especially in climate change. And that is a message and an argument that uh, I felt it was really important to get out there in the world, uh, really out of an experience I had about a decade ago when I had the chance to spend some time at the U.S. Department of State uh, working for the China desk. Uh, that's the office that handles U.S.-China relations and with a, a, a set of job responsibilities called Environment, Science, Technology, and Health. At the time, that was definitely a kind of catch-all category that was a little more peripheral, I, I guess I would say, uh, to our relationship with China relative to some of my colleagues who were working on more kind of core security or, or trade issues. But over the course of the time that I was there, which was 2015-2016, uh, uh, I noticed something really interesting, which is that sustainability issues, and especially climate change, moved from being important but still somewhat peripheral issues in U.S.-China relations to one of, if not the most important issues in U.S.-China relations. And that was especially the case uh, because in that time period, uh, we had a lot of outreach to China, a lot of diplomatic activity around the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which, of course, uh, went on to become uh, probably the most important uh, international climate policy uh, agreement that we have. And it was that experience, seeing uh, how central sustainability in general and climate in particular became to U.S.-China relations that made me want to write a book that just provided an overview of China's role 
in addressing these shared sustainability challenges that have become so acute. And that's not just climate change, by the way, it's also uh, our biodiversity crisis, uh, in many ways, our, our plastic waste crisis. Pretty much every major environmental issue, China is a really key player. So I wanted to write a book that would explain what that role looks like, especially against the backdrop of uh, rising tensions and uh, generally uh, deteriorating relationships between China, the U.S., and other countries. I want to go into those tensions in just a moment. But first off, I wonder, you know, as you just mentioned, you spend quite a bit of time in the book writing about China's global importance in energy and ecological matters. If you don't mind, could you take a little bit of time putting China more into context in terms of the energy transition, sustainability, and its centrality in terms of technology and diplomacy in, in these areas? From a climate perspective, China's role is pretty easy to explain in that it is the world's largest emitter uh, and has been since uh, the early 2000s. And its emissions are so great uh, that China has uh, uh, accounted for about 25% of all carbon dioxide uh, emissions uh, that have taken place this century. Um, so just to give you a sense of how big of a, uh, of a player and how big of a source of greenhouse gases uh, China has uh, become. Uh, and there are several uh, kind of key aspects of that. One is just how quickly China's economy has grown uh, and how large of an economy it is. It's, of course, the world's second largest uh, economy, but it's also the center of the world's manufacturing base. And that's really important because uh, manufacturing and heavy industry tends to be more carbon intensive. And the fact that it's so heavily concentrated in China means that China has uh, accumulated and accounts for a really broad uh, uh, swath of the world's emissions, including in some of the sectors that are hardest to decarbonize, like uh, steelmaking, cement manufacturing, etc. So a lot of those really hard to abate or hard to decarbonize sectors are concentrated in China. And that uh, makes it a really key player just uh, from a, a climate and energy perspective. And China is the world's largest uh, energy consumer. Apart from that, uh, China has just from a, a political uh, and diplomatic standpoint uh, come to play a really important role in international climate negotiations and international climate policy. So uh, China is a key actor from that perspective as well. So it's kind of the combination of economic political, diplomatic, and uh, uh, ecological energy uh, dimensions that China plays such an important role in global climate change and really is the, the most important single actor. And China uh, has, has, over the last two decades, uh, become the largest uh, manufacturer of wind and solar energy technology as well. Um, China's also a huge uh, uh, market for electric vehicles. So across a range of key clean energy technologies, China's a really important uh, producer, uh, uh, and it's also a really important market. And so it's, uh, it's on the technological side as well that China is such an important player. So China really is indispensable in the energy transition to decarbonization and to fulfilling the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. Absolutely. As you just mentioned, we're now in a time of increasing economic and geopolitical tension between China and developed countries. And, and this leads to 
a central question that you address in the book, and that is, is China a collaborator when it comes to the transition to clean energy and climate sustainability, or is it a competitor or both? What are your thoughts? I do think it's both, Andy. And your question kind of gets back to um, a a little bit of the background on this book and and why I wanted to write it. When I uh, was working at the State Department and we were uh, working with uh, our Chinese counterparts so intensely on the Paris Agreement talks, uh, we often referred to climate change as the bright spot in U.S.-China relations. In other words, it was really the best and most promising example of where the two countries were able to work together. Um, And even at the time, relations were were pretty rocky uh, on a bunch of other issues. They've gotten much worse since then, but they were rocky even at the time. And climate change really looked to us like it was the the great uh, exception. Um, Unfortunately, uh, one of the big trends that you've seen over the last decade or so has been that these broader tensions in the U.S.-China relationship um, have increasingly spilled over uh, into climate change. And the the best and clearest example of that was uh, this past summer when, in response to former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, Beijing suspended uh, climate uh, uh, dialogue with the United States in, in response and, and retaliation for her visit. They have since lifted that suspension, so U.S.-China climate talks and, and dialogue has resumed, But what that incident made clear uh, is that tensions over issues like Taiwan, uh, human rights, uh, et cetera, have increasingly spilled over into climate change. And climate change is no longer the bright spot that it once appeared to be. So unfortunately, it's it's proven to be the case that that climate change is no longer kind of all about cooperation. It is also influenced by the growing uh, tension, rivalry and competition that we see between uh, China and other countries. And it's also worth uh, mentioning that although the U.S. and China kind of is the best example of how this this tension and competition has spilled over into climate change, it's also proven true to a lesser degree uh, uh, with respect to Europe. The European Union in particular uh, had long had climate change as uh, one of, if not the top uh, issue in its uh, relationship with China. And just over the last year uh, or so, senior uh, EU officials have begun to temper what was previously a cooperative attitude towards China with respect to climate change and and been much more skeptical of China's actions uh, in the climate and energy space. So uh, across the board, we've seen geopolitics uh, increasingly shape climate change uh, relationships with China as much as economic or energy issues. It's very interesting because you write about the arc in the relationship between China and developed countries in the West from a relationship of collaboration primarily back in the 1990s. And this is when China's economy was really starting to pick up to one of more uh, competitive relationship today. There's a particularly revealing passage in the book that I just want to quote from here for just a moment and and ask for your comments on, but I think it really kind of talks about what China's motivations are today in terms of addressing climate and technology issues and and the increasing competitiveness. And, And here's that little passage. Deep normative differences between China and the West in terms of what it means to protect the planet and why makes it hard to conjure a truly common vision of sustainable development and unwise to bank on wide-ranging cooperation 
to solve the world's climate crisis. Can you comment on that passage? I do think underlying all of this, and it's not just climate change, but some of the other issues that I, I talk about in the book, you know, other shared challenges like, uh, as I mentioned, biodiversity and other uh, others as well. There is a sharp difference of values that I think does help to explain why cooperation between uh, the U.S., China, and other countries on climate change and other environmental issues has not been as successful as we might have hoped. And, and it's also worth stressing that things like suspending climate talks are some of the clearest indications of how deteriorating relations and, and geopolitics have affected the fight against climate change. But it's also, I think, true that just at a broader level, U.S.-China cooperation, cooperation between China and other countries has really not to date had nearly as much of a material impact on reducing emissions as we, we would have hoped. And I think there's really kind of a, a general failure of global cooperation and U.S.-China cooperation that, that cries out for explanation which is one of the things that I hope the book can contribute to, is helping to explain why uh, that failure has been so acute and, of course, how we can try to avoid that failure in the future. But I think uh, at, at root, that failure is because of, of deep differences in values when it comes to uh, the environment and sustainability. And so in the book, I talk about China's general approach to environmental policy, which has for the most part, very different motivations to those of the West and, and in countries like the U.S. There are some overlaps. So one motivation that does overlap, I think, with that uh, of the West and the U.S. is the idea that investment in clean technology and in more sustainable economic models can help to power future growth and create new industries, create jobs. That's a, a motivation that very much resonates in Beijing as much as it does in, in Washington or Berlin or Brussels or other capitals. So that is shared. But I think once you get beyond that, the motivations uh, for uh, environmental and energy policy do look uh, quite, quite different. And the one that I, I focus most on in the book is uh, environmental degradation as a source of protest and social instability, which is significant in China. And again, one of the things I, I talk about is the example of several countries uh, that in the process of uh, overthrowing uh, authoritarian regimes and becoming democracies experienced uh, a sharp increase in environmental protests. And that is particularly true uh, in the case of Taiwan, which of course is, a, is an example that is deeply disconcerting to China's leaders. Uh, and uh, the statistic is something like environmental protests accounted for something like uh, 40 to 50 percent of all protests that preceded the dissolution of Taiwan's military government towards the end of the 1980s. Similar, though less dramatic uh, examples can be found in the democratization of South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, Central and, and Eastern European countries as well. So it's an example that, that haunts China's leaders. Uh, and you've seen over the last 30 years a steadily increasing uh, effort to really try to nip uh, potential sources of environmental protest in the bud uh, and to co-opt uh, any sort of popular environmental movement. And the, the result of that is that environmentalism and environmental policy in China just looks very different 
from the West uh, and in countries like the U.S. It's much more state-centric, uh, much more uh, dominated by governmental uh, and state actors. Uh, and the role of uh, civil society and uh, non-governmental actors is much more uh, carefully circumscribed. Um, and it's a, in general, there's a, a sort of approach that I, 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 following others, call authoritarian environmentalism that I talk about in the book. And I think that very, the very different values that that reflects make it really hard to really cooperate on uh, shared environmental challenges. It sounds like China in the Communist Party's response to environmental challenges and, you know, energy is very much tied into that response. That's all critical to maintaining the legitimacy of the Communist Party, to maintaining its power. Right. That informs and directs the way innovation and the response to climate in many technological areas is handled in China. It's very much a top-down, state-directed approach to technology, industry, and sustainability. I wonder if you could tell us more about that approach. Yes, you're absolutely right. And uh, that, incidentally, is another source, I think, of tension and that makes it difficult to really construct a, a truly cooperative response, particularly to climate change. The kind of state-centered and heavy state kind of oriented role that you see in environmental policy is also replicated in most economic sectors and with respect to uh, technological development, uh, including in renewables, where there is a really a heavy role for policy direction and direct policy support, uh, sometimes uh, really direct subsidies by the state for uh, the development of new technology. And this was true of uh, wind and solar going back uh, a decade or so as well. And one of the consequences of that uh, have been allegations from other countries, the U.S., Germany, uh, uh, others as well, that the heavy involvement of the state uh, created unfair advantages for Chinese producers of uh, particularly uh, renewable energy technology, uh, but some other technologies as well that are kind of critical to decarbonization. And that kind of source of trade tension uh, has also become a pretty big issue and barrier to expanded U.S.-China cooperation. And it's maybe worth um, kind of pointing out that uh, an argument I often make is if you were just sort of sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and, you know, putting politics and, and political realities aside for a moment, and your, your objective was, what's the best plan to fight climate change? Probably a key part of what you would come up with is, let's use China's manufacturing economies of scale to churn out wind and solar power and electric vehicles as cheaply as possible. Because in most every case, uh, China remains the lowest cost producer uh, of a lot of those key clean energy technologies. So you would probably say, Let's make this stuff in China because it's going to be, you know, lowest cost. Um, and then let's uh, uh, export it around the world. Uh, and let's use, uh, for the most part, foreign intellectual property for the designs for that technology. So in other words, the, the intellectual property, for the most part, is going to be coming from outside China. China's role in this, in this ecosystem is going to be to make this stuff at lowest cost. And then we're just going to export it, spread it around the world. That would probably be uh, the best plan just from a how do we 
get renewables and clean tech out there as quickly and cheaply as possible. The problem with that um, is that due in part to these uh, concerns and allegations over unfair trade trade practices on the part of uh, uh, of the Chinese state and Chinese firms, uh, that's not politically uh, tenable uh, in in most other countries. And so if you look at uh, the U.S. Uh, in particular, direction of policy has been to say, uh, let's make, yeah, you know, we're certainly supportive of, uh, of spreading wind and, and solar and other clean technology, but we're going to make it here at home. Uh, we're not going to rely on uh, Chinese manufactured products, even if they're lowest cost. So it's that sort of political economic uh, factor that has really shaped and in some ways warped the world's clean tech ecosystem and the deployment of renewables. You discussed quite a bit in the book this issue of innovation and the state's role in producing or incentivizing or disincentivizing innovation. And I'm not sure if that really applies more to the areas of artificial intelligence and biomedical technologies. I wonder if you could talk here about the role of the state in innovation or otherwise. Does this influence the energy industry at all and China's relative advantages or disadvantages in the production of solar and wind technology and what have you? I should maybe point out that, you know, our, our the focus of, of, of our conversation is really on the sustainability and especially the climate issues that I cover in the book. But I do look uh, as well at a, a kind of a, a whole segment of emerging technologies. And I do that in the book for two reasons. One, it's the case that uh, emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and robotics, autonomous systems, uh, are are actually playing a, a, a pretty uh, significant role in where decarbonization technologies are headed, whether it's optimization of energy grids or deployment of new forms of, of clean energy technologies. It's also uh, just true that um, when you think about cooperation with China and, and what the need is uh, to engage China. China's a, a huge, just as it's a huge player in sustainability, it's also a huge player when it comes to almost any uh, emerging technology. And artificial intelligence is one of the best examples of that. So where I think your question really comes into, uh, into play with respect to climate uh, and energy uh, is when it comes to not current, you know, relatively mature technology, which your kind of standard uh, uh, polysilicon uh, solar uh, panel, uh, you know, it's pretty mature, uh, pretty commercial, uh, commercialized uh, uh, technology. There, you know, China has a lot of advantages just because of economies of scale in manufacturing, as, as we talked about, uh, and on the sort of deployment side. But it's on the development side uh, where uh, China does have some challenges uh, relative to its foreign competitors. And that's one reason I say that probably the best kind of uh, complementarity would be to use foreign intellectual property, which for the most part does remain kind of the, the most advanced in most clean tech sectors and market segments, um, just using China's manufacturing economies of scale. So it's really thinking about the next generation of clean technology that those uh, di uh, disincentives uh, when it comes to development come into play. Um, and what those disincentives look like have to do, for the most part, as you hinted at, um, with just the, the larger role of the state uh, in shaping how research gets done and how uh, funding and other resources for research and development get allocated. There's no perfect system for that allocation, 
But because uh, China's approach to that is so heavily state-dominated, you do tend to see just a lot of inefficiency. Uh, And it's everything from the traditional problems where you know, if you have governments and, and bureaucrats sort of trying to, to uh, pick winners and, and sort of try to uh, identify the next uh, uh, most promising technologies, that, that doesn't have a very good track record to just generally inefficient spending. Um, all of those things make it, in my view, less likely that China is going to be able to produce the biggest advances, both in clean technology and in other fields. And I think those advances are more likely to come from uh, research elsewhere. China has seen it to be very important to be viewed as a leader on climate, not as a follower, in particular, not a follower to the U.S. or to the European Union. And and I guess this is one of the areas of, of intangible signs of leadership that I think China is very, very aware of. China has been very heavily criticized for supporting fossil fuel developments through its Belt and Road Initiative, through which it has also worked to secure energy and mineral resources. And and here, China seems to be pushing forward or competing with little regard to climate or sustainability matters, although in 2021, it did pledge to stop funding coal projects abroad. How does the Belt and Road Initiative tie into China's role and its status, I guess more on a a political front in terms of leadership in addressing climate issues, sustainability, and clean energy? This is another key way in which China just affects every aspect or almost every aspect of global sustainability. And it's through overseas investment. As one of the world's largest economies, the second largest economy. China is a key source of uh, investment in countries across the world, as varied as Cambodia, Argentina, even countries like Afghanistan. Uh, China is a significant source of uh, investment. And because of that importance, China plays uh, an enormous role in shaping sustainability. One of the most visible ways in which it does that is as a source of infrastructure financing. Um, And it's there where the Belt and Road really comes into play, because although not all of Chinese foreign investment uh, is is through the Belt and Road Initiative, what the Belt and Road Initiative does do is gather together under one sort of umbrella uh, most of China's large infrastructure investments abroad. And for that reason, it's attracted, as you you pointed out, a lot of criticism for uh, its effect both on emissions uh, as well as biodiversity and other uh, sustainability-related uh, uh, related issues. So basically, the Belt and Road to date has had a negative impact uh, uh, environmentally, uh, both from an emissions standpoint and from a, a biodiversity uh, standpoint, because for the most part, Chinese financing has gone to constructing Uh, very large infrastructure projects and energy sector investments in fossil fuels um, that probably would not have occurred otherwise, which is to say that uh, had those projects depended on uh, other sources of financing from outside China, most of them probably wouldn't have been built. So in that sense, it's a net negative. That being said, as you pointed out, China did undertake a commitment to stop financing uh, overseas coal plants, uh, at least uh, beyond those already uh, under construction in 2021. That's a positive sign, uh, but it is worth pointing out that most of China's energy sector investment uh, overseas, both through the Belt and Road and other channels, does remain uh, devoted to fossil fuels. And in particular, 
uh, China remains very heavily involved in oil and gas extraction around the world. So it's far from from fossil free. The second thing uh, to say is that over time, uh, China has put forward a number of commitments to make uh, Belt and Road projects more sustainable. There hasn't been a lot of concrete sign of that so far, but I, I don't think they're uh, empty promises. I do think uh, what we can expect to see is uh, a reduction in the volume of Belt and Road projects and the incorporation of at least a few better practices from a sustainability point of view. So not good, uh, and it's been a, a net negative uh, over the last five or so years, uh, but there are some signs that it's uh, it's improving and getting a little a little better. And I think the big sort of push and task now is to really to try to build on the the success, I think, of the the phase out of uh, uh, of coal plant financing and really broaden that to be most, if not all, fossil fuel infrastructure, especially oil and gas. I'd like to take a step back just for a moment, back to the conversation we had around collaboration and competition. And I think so far in this conversation, collaboration has been characterized as something being generally good and competition maybe not. But you also point out in your writing that competition isn't necessarily a bad thing when we're looking at the energy transition and dealing with climate, that some good can come out of it. Could you talk about that? Thanks for bringing that up, Andy, because I do think that's an important point that that became apparent to me in writing the book. And and just to kind of uh, take a quick step back, you know, it's 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 almost uh, axiomatic, and it's certainly you know pretty intuitive that uh, okay, if we're going to solve climate change, uh, we need cooperation. We need cooperation between the U.S. and China, and you know, really uh, uh, between between all countries. And that is true to a certain extent. But I think there are at least a couple of, of, of cases and situations in which you don't necessarily need cooperation and in which competition might even be helpful. And there are two particular examples of that that I'll just mention briefly, one of which I cover in the book and one of which uh, happened a little bit, little bit more recently. So what I talk a little bit about in the book is the development and deployment of uh, more advanced uh, clean energy technologies. So, you know, right now, Wind and solar, uh, you know, is pretty, as I mentioned, pretty uh, mature technology, uh, commercially available in most uh, most parts of the world, generally pretty cost competitive. However, uh, we are going to need uh, a lot more uh, clean technology and in many ways, a lot more advanced clean technology in order to decarbonize uh, by the end of the century. We are going to, in particular, need better uh, storage, uh, probably more efficient uh, solar panels, uh, certainly, uh, a lot of work in uh, uh, in electric vehicle technology, uh, electrification of sectors like aviation, deployment of hydrogen, the, the list kind of goes on. And it's really in that space, when we get to the sort of like the next generation of clean technology, uh, that I think competition can be helpful. I mentioned that I think China has some, some disadvantages when it comes to basic research and development. And nonetheless, China is is trying very hard to address some of those shortcomings uh, through uh, increased investment. And in some cases, that investment has actually created a little bit of a, of a competition and arms race uh, with other countries. An example of that that we saw is the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which includes a fair amount of financing for clean energy technology development and deployment. And in his message to Congress uh, saying, essentially, if you pass this bill, I will sign it. President Biden specifically referred to the need for this this legislation and this money to help the United States compete more effectively uh, with China. 
So to the extent that that kind of competition leads to more wind and solar and leads to more investment in the kind of technology that we need going forward, I think it can be helpful rather than harmful to the climate. Another example um, that's a little bit more tentative and recent, but could potentially be quite impactful, uh, is just at uh, uh, at COP27, the, the climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, that you also uh, uh, attended, we saw a really interesting development where other developing countries really started to harangue China uh, for increased uh, adaptation uh, financing. And that was uh, uh, really encouraged by the U.S. Uh, and its allies uh, as a way of kind of isolating China. And uh, it proved pretty effective uh, in that uh, China uh, eventually conceded to the creation of a, uh, a separate uh, loss and damage fund that would be available to uh, the most vulnerable developing countries, so presumably not China uh, itself. Now, it's a little bit uh, early to say whether that's going to have any kind of material impact in terms of helping the, the poorest and most vulnerable countries effectively adapt to climate change. But if it does, I think you can say that uh, geopolitical competition and, and rivalry you know, had, had something of a positive outcome on a key aspect of climate policy. As a final topic here, I want to extend this conversation on the COP process. We were just talking about adaptation, loss and damage, but obviously China is very, very important in mitigation of carbon emissions as well. As we talked at the beginning of this conversation, it's the largest emitter in the world, largest consumer of fossil fuels. China has has dedicated itself or announced that it will be carbon neutral by 2060, peak its emissions by the end of this decade. It's notable that that China was so central in the finalization of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. It was last-minute conversations between the U.S. and China that pushed that agreement, you know, o- over the over the edge into into success. But looking at where we are this year, China has played a lower-profile role, particularly at in Egypt at COP last November. And in 2023, this year, mitigation will again be highlighted at COP28 that's going to happen in the United Arab Emirates. How is China framing its role globally and its leadership in terms of addressing mitigation? Again, given that its targets are relatively far out, the developed world, the European Union, and hopefully the United States will continue with its plans to mitigate much more quickly. Well, and it's, it's worth kind of probably uh, uh, just just backing up to say that China's headline uh, climate commitment, which is a very significant one, given, as you pointed out, its, uh, its status as the world's largest emitter, uh, is to become net uh, uh, carbon neutral on a net, net basis uh, by 2060. There, uh, incidentally, China is also uh, a major source of other, of non- CO2 greenhouse gases, uh, most notably methane, there has been a little bit of prevarication as to whether uh, China's net zero target applies to uh, non-CO2 uh, greenhouse gases. There was a period in which uh, that was the message from official sources. It's since been walked back. But that, nonetheless, even if it applies only to CO2, uh, is an extremely important and ambitious, given the size of China's emissions uh, overall, uh, commitment. Uh, that uh, Beijing has made. It is, as you pointed out, uh, a 2060 target, which puts it a little bit later 
than some of the other headline commitments. The EU's commitment uh, uh, is 2050. Japan's net zero target is uh, is 2050 as well. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, for you know the size of its economy and emissions, uh, it, it's a it's an ambitious and important uh, target as a general matter. Um, what that uh, target did, um, and it was announced in 2020, was to really uh, separate out China from other large developing economies, uh, uh, especially uh, India, Brazil, uh, and others that uh, had resisted uh, uh, making kind of a, a similarly ambitious commitment. Uh, and for that, uh, for that reason, uh, China kind of uh, put itself in a different league when it came to its emissions commitments and its, its sort of role in, uh, in mitigation. One of the um, dangers or, or vulnerabilities of doing that, though, is it also attracted a lot, of, uh, a lot of scrutiny. And so there has been a lot of skepticism as to whether China can, uh, can meet those commitments. It actually does look uh, uh, fairly feasible. Um, it's going to require uh, an investment of something on the order of uh, 4% of GDP um, per year over the next uh, uh, 30 years or so. But for you know the entire energy sector, um, that, that doesn't seem like an enormously heavy lift uh, for China. Um, there are some technical hurdles, but again, with uh, enough investment of research and, and development. The biggest uh, hurdle, I think, is just going to be sustaining uh, political prioritization of the target uh, over that 30-year period. Uh, even though China is an authoritarian country with much greater uh, you know, stability of leadership uh, than is the case in uh, most democracies, that's a long time to assume that there's going to be a high uh, a level of commitment to a very long-term uh, target. Uh, and what we've seen in, in between there uh, is that the pressures of, of getting out of the pandemic, uh, trying to uh, uh, give a shot in the arm to a, a somewhat uh, lackluster economy has already created uh, pressures to slow down decarbonization targets in order to reduce the costs uh, borne by industry, for example. Well, you know, it's very interesting as a last comment here, the, the point that you just brought out, right? China is still a developing economy. It is kind of in, in a unique position, right? Because of its size, because of its economic heft, that it is now being compared to, and its ambition on climate is being compared to developed countries. It is still a developing country. And then you also put very nicely into perspective, uh, who are its peers? Its peers may be more like countries such as as India, right, in, in this whole process. Correct. Yes. The uh, uh, final sort of note on this going forward is that uh, I think, you know, climate change is probably the area in which China has been most successful uh, in portraying itself as uh, an equal or a peer with the kind of other great powers uh, uh, of the world, especially the United States and the European Union. Um, I think just from a, a diplomatic perspective and a political perspective, that's enormously important for Beijing. Uh, I think that that's a role that they would certainly like to continue to keep playing. But I think one of the interesting things about uh, this latest climate conference was that sense of isolation, really, uh, on the part of China, uh, and isolation both from other developing countries and certainly isolation from the very uh, countries that it, it would like to be seen as as peers with the United States and the European Union. So I think that's a, that's a very interesting dynamic to watch going forward. That's, you know, kind of a, an additional political 
uh, or geopolitical aspect to climate change. And, and if maybe I could just end with a, an observation that, uh, that it, I think is increasingly true is that we're seeing climate change really become shaped as much by geopolitics uh, as by energy, environment, or economics as it has been in the past. And that geopolitical component is especially important when it comes to China. Scott, thanks very much for talking. Thank you so much, Andy. Always a pleasure. Today's guest has been Scott Moore, Director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. If you like the show, please subscribe through your favorite podcast app and leave us a message and a rating. We appreciate and look forward to your feedback. And for more energy policy insights, visit the Kleinman Center's website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.